Section 10 of Bethlehem by Frederick William Faber. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Midnight Cave, Part 3. But these things are spiritual types as well as material realities. Matter has many times masked angels. There were five spiritual presences in the cave of Bethlehem, which these five material things most aptly represented. They were poverty, abandonment, rejection, secrecy, and mortification. They started with the infant Jesus from the cave, and they went with him to the tomb. They are stern powers, and their visages unlovely, and their voices harsh, and their company unwelcomed to the natural man. But to the eye, which grace has cleansed, they are beautiful exceedingly, and their solemnity inviting, and their spells, like those of earthly love, making the heart to burn, and full often guiding life into a romance of sanctity. The companionship of the beasts, and the room they had as it were lent him to be born in, betokened his exceeding poverty. The manger was the type of his abandonment. Could any figure have been more complete? The refuse straw on which he lay, and which perhaps Joseph gathered from under the feet of the cattle, well expressed that rejection wherewith men have visited, and will visit him and his church throughout all generations until the end. The darkness round him was a symbol of those strange and manifold secrecies in which he loves to shroud himself, like the eclipse on Calvary, or the impenetrable thinness of the sacramental veils. The wintry cold which caused his delicate frame to shudder and to feel its first pain was the fitting commencement of that incessant penance and the continuous mortification which the all-holy and the innocent underwent for the redemption of the guilty. These five stood like spiritual presences around his crib, waiting for his coming. Poverty, abandonment, rejection, secrecy, and mortification. Alas, we must be changed indeed before such attendance shall be choice of ours. Yet, have they not been evermore the five sisters of all the saints of God? There was something, therefore, in these five things which expressed the character of the incarnate word. They portrayed his human sanctity, they were a prophecy of the three and thirty years, they foreshowed the spirit and genius of his church in all ages, they reversed the judgments of the world, and were the new standards according to which the last universal judgment was to be measured. They were in themselves a revelation, for the ancient scriptures had but very dimly intimated them, and the philosophy of the heathen had not so much as dreamed of them. Even now, what are all heresies which concern holy living but a dishonouring of them? Asceticism is part of the ignominy of the cross, and modern heathenism turns from it with the same disdain which the elder heathenism of Greece and Rome showed for it in the days of the persecuting Caesars. Yet these five things not only contain the peculiar spirit of the Incarnation and embody its heavenly characteristics, they also express the character of God himself and throw light upon the hidden things of his divine majesty. Is not created poverty the true dignity of him whose wealth is uncreated? Shall he whose life has been eternal independence and self-sufficing beatitude lean upon creatures? Can the very thought of comfort come nigh to the omnipotent and not dishonour him? Silver and gold, diamonds and pearls, houses and lands, all these things surely would have seemed more truly ignominies to God than the reproaches of Zion, or the cruelties of Calvary. It was enough that he let our nature lean upon his person, 
It was enough that he abased himself to lean upon the sinless beauty of his mortal mother, and owe to her the possession of that which he had himself created. Even the abandonment of Bethlehem was worthy of his self-sufficing loneliness. Men fell off from him, as if he were not altogether of themselves, as truly he was not. He was used to stand alone, it was the habit of an unbeginning eternity. It was a work of his own grace, the permission of his own condescension, which allowed anyone, even Mary and Joseph, to remain with him and be on his side. There was something like worship in his abandonment, through which they who abandoned him meant it not as such. It was an acknowledgment, blind, erring, even malicious, yet still an acknowledgment of his unapproachable grandeur. When men tacitly permit another's right to be alone and not to mingle with the crowd, it is because their instincts divine something in him which is entitled to the homage either of their love or of their fear. He was passive when men abandoned him. When he was active and offered himself to them, they rejected him. Had not this been God's history with his creatures from the first, independently of the Incarnation? if any passage in the history of creation can be said to be independent of it. Awful as is the guilt of this rejection, it glorifies God unconsciously and beyond its own intention, even like the despair of those who have chosen to hide themselves from him in everlasting exile. It is a mark by which we may measure how far the finite falls off from the infinite. It is a token of the magnificent incomprehensibility of God, it is the wickedness of ignorance which simply rejects God, the clear light of immortal despair defies, because it knows that acceptance is now impossible. The secrecy of Bethlehem is no less becoming to the inscrutable majesty of God. He is invisible because created eye cannot see him. He shrouds himself when he works, lest creation should be blinded with the very reflection from his laboratories. He needs to wear no other veil than his own wondrous nature, the brightness of his uncreated sanctity is a more impenetrable concealment than the darkness of the old chaos. Secrecy alone becomes so great a majesty, so resplendent a beauty, so unutterable a sanctity as his. All revelation is on God's part a condescension. If we may dare so to speak, it is rather love which humbles him to disclose his goodness than glory which constrains him to manifest his greatness. Last of all, mortification also is becoming to the majesty of God. Even had he come not to suffer, but in a glorious, blissful, impassable incarnation, he would surely have moved amidst the sensible delights and lovelinesses of the earth as the sunbeam moves through the wood, gilding trunk and leaf, ferny dell and mossy bank, the stony falls of the brook and the tapestry of wild flowers the pageant of the bright insects and the plumage of the shy birds, yet mingling not itself with any of them, giving beauty, not taking it, colouring all things, yet admitting no colour into its own translucent whiteness, a heavenly yet an earthly thing, a loving light upon us and amongst us, intimate, familiar, independent, universal, and yet unsullied. It is by sensible things that we go deeper down into creation and confuse ourselves with its lower lives. Mortification is the ministry of the senses to the God-seeing soul. Immortification is the captivity of the soul to sing sweet songs to the senses and give an intellectual relish to their enjoyments. Asceticism is simply an angelic life, 
grace raising nature to a nature higher than itself, yea, nigh, amazingly nigh, to the very nature of God. There is a mortification which is a fight for freedom. Such a mortification could in no way belong to our blessed Lord. There is also a mortification which is the full liberty of holiness, and such was his. It was not that he did not assume our senses and the sensible fashions of our lives, but that he bore himself as was becoming God towards those outward things. God reveals himself to us as wishing, yet not constraining our freedom so as to secure his desires, as claiming rights yet consenting himself with what is far below his claim, as giving grace and letting men make waste of its abundance, as pleading when it would have seemed more natural to command, as coveting the hearts of men, yet being unspeakably less rich in his creature's love than he craves to be, as aiming at a mark of which he is content to fall short, as compassing whole creations in his nets of love, and taking but a partial prey. What is all this but something of which mortification is a created shadow? Surely there is no truth we need in these times to lay to heart more strongly than that the character of Jesus is the character of the invisible God, and the fashions of the Incarnation, the fashions also of the divine incomprehensibility. What truth holds more teaching than this? What teaching refutes at once a greater number of untruths, and those too the special errors of our day? But why are we thus lingering so long on the threshold of the great event? Is it that the night draws on so slowly, or that our desires are cold and unimpassioned? Love surely knows full well of that impatience which delays, whose very fire causes it to hesitate, to tremble, to grow calm. We are looking on the sights which Mary's eyes beheld. It is sometimes said that she was so poor that she was unable to make better preparation for the coming of the babe. By no means let us think this. It could have been otherwise had Mary so chosen, if the birth of her beloved was to be in a stable, and after the rejection of inhospitable Bethlehem, she could have furnished other lining for the manger than the crisp and prickly straw. She, who was prepared with the swaddling clothes, might have been ready with better protection against the cold of the rigorous night. These accidents were not the necessities of the mother's poverty, they were the heroisms of her obedience. They were the son's choice, and the mother knew well beforehand what he had chosen. For nine months at least, if not before, she had seen only with his eyes, and loved only with his heart. She was in his confidence, and his tastes were her tastes, her heavenly standards, her weights and measures also. Often in vision had she seen the cave, and had been ravished with the spiritual beauty of the unworldly preparations. Now the hour was come, and she was looking on the realities." They were a heavenly science to her, a most beautiful theology. She saw them not as we see them, merely on the surface as mirrors imaging divine things, but mistily and brokenly. She saw deep into their wonderful significance. Long processions of fair truths rose up and came out of each of them. Their mysteries stood still while she gazed upon them. She beheld the accomplishment of their prophecies, the strangeness of their proprieties, the gracefulness of their unworldly lineaments. Light from heaven was round about them, the radiance of the eternal splendors. They raised her soul to God, and she entered into a blissful ecstasy, a state which, if not natural to her, as some suppose, was at all events ever nigh at hand, 
when she let her thoughts fly freely to the centre of their rest. Such was the unspeakable magnificence of her soul, that we cannot doubt that the operations of grace within it during that ecstasy were more numerous and manifold, as well as incomparably more elevated than those which fill a saint's whole life and call forth in us intelligent wonder and enthusiastic praise of God. Yet in her these operations were also divinely simple, with an absorbing simplicity which no saint has ever known. Her mighty soul strives to grow to the height and stature of the mystery, and falls far short of its incomprehensibility. It is a fresh joy, a rapturous redoublement of ecstasy, that it is in truth beyond her comprehension, and more than ever she desires to look upon that little face, which shall express to her in its silentness those mysteries which words cannot paint, and to the conception of which busy thought can give neither hue nor form. Evermore the beasts and the manger and the straw and the darkness and the cold seem to flit before her in an ecstasy, uncertainly and double-faced, one while showing their definite material features, and another while turning upon her the beautiful countenances of poverty, abandonment, rejection, secrecy, and mortification. She looked upward and beheld those abysses in God which these outward things betokened. She looked inward, with her new nine-months habit, for that was to her what upward was to all other adoring souls of men. And she trembled at the greatness of the mystery she desired, even while her humility feared lest a desire should be a will, but the desire of her heart, like a shaft that cannot be recalled, had sped its way. It reached the heart of the babe, and at once she felt the touch of God, and was unutterably calm, and Jesus lay upon the ground on the skirt of her robe, and she fell down before him to adore. Twice had her pure desire drawn him from the home of his predilection, once from the uncreated bosom of the Father, and once from her own created bosom, which he tenanted. It was as if the sweet will of Mary were the timepiece of the divine decrees. Mary has looked upon the face of the incarnate God. In one glance she has read their voluminous wonders of heaven, and yet sees that its loveliness is inexhaustible. The vision has surpassed all expectations, even such expectations as hers. She gazes, and as she gazes she can understand how the mightiest spirits of angels and of men, in the full-grown stature of their imperishable glory, will unfold themselves in the sunlight of that beautiful countenance, and feed forever on the manifold expression of its sweet worshipful solemnity. A change comes over her, of which this visible change is the stupendous token. It is an unspeakable crisis in her life of grace, one of those new beginnings of which the Annunciation was one, and the descent of the Holy Ghost another. She was no longer the tabernacle of the hidden God. God had changed his position towards her, and so her graces were changed, changed with the only kind of change they ever knew, an incredible augmentation. She was suddenly clothed with a new purity, for Jesus had again magnified her spotlessness by the manner of his nativity, as he had done before by the manner of his incarnation. It was a purity such as no creature has ever shared. There had never been heretofore a created purity which at all resembled hers. She looks upon his face and grows more like him by looking. One while he wears an expression as if he were created, another while as though he were that moment judging. His great reason with its plenitude of consciousness and its abysmal science was manifest, and yet it overlaid not the delicate gracefulness of infantile infirmity. 
there was something in the silentness of his look which compelled worship by its palatable mysteriousness, even while it allured familiarity by its almost pitiful and plaintive eloquence. As at the moment of the Immaculate Conception, as in the hour of the Annunciation, so was it at the Nativity. The mother began for the third time a new life of gigantic sanctities. Joseph likewise draws near to a door. The earthly shadow of the Eternal Father rests softly on the child. His temporal birth is complete with its adumbration of his unbeginning and unending nativity. Joseph draws near, that most hidden of all God's saints, shrouded in the very clouds and shadows which surround the unbegotten fountain of the Godhead. His soul is an abyss of nameless graces, of graces deeper than those from which ordinary virtues spring, roots which make no trial of the winter of this world, but wait to bear marvellous blossoms before the face of God in the world to come. We can give no name to the character of his sanctity. We cannot compare him with any other of the saints of God. As his office was unshared, so was his grace. It followed the peculiarities of his office. It stood alone. He was to Mary among men, what Gabriel was to her among angels. But he came nearer to her than Gabriel, for he was of her nature. What St. John was to Mary after Calvary, Joseph was to her after Bethlehem so that probably, if we could perceive it, there was an analogy between his holiness and that of the beloved disciple. But his sanctification is hidden in obscurity. It is probable that he had received the gift of original justice, as the Baptist had, though whether it was restored to him before birth, as with John and Jeremiah, we cannot tell. It is becoming to think also that, by a special grace, he was preserved from venial sin, it is most certain that he was a peculiar vessel of the divine predilection, eternally predestined to a singular and incomparably sublime office, and laden with the most magnificent of graces to fit him for that office. For wonderful as was his office to Mary, his office to Jesus far surpassed it, unless, as is more true, the former was but a portion of the latter. He stood to Jesus visibly in the place of the Eternal Father. He was loved, therefore, in a most peculiar way by the divine person, whom he thus awfully represented, and also in a most peculiar way by the second and third persons of the Most Holy Trinity, because of that mysterious representation. The human soul of Jesus must have regarded him, not only with the tenderest love, but also with deep reverence and an inexplicable submission. Meek and gentle, blameless and loving as St. Joseph was, it is not possible to think of him without extreme awe because of that shadow of identity with the Eternal Father which belongs to him, and hides him from our sight even while it presents him to our faith. We cannot describe his holiness because we have no term of comparison. It was not only higher in degree than that of the saints, it was also different in kind. But it was eminently hidden with God. His life was an unearthly life. His very place in the world was but a seeming place. He was an apparition in the world, an apparition of the unbegotten and everlasting. His soul was, as it were, withdrawn into itself. He was weak, and in years, mild and unresenting, poor and obscure, passive and docile, and yet an inexpungible fortress behind which the honour of Mary and the life of Jesus were secure. If his hiddenness was like that of God, so also was his tranquillity. His justice, like that of God, was so tempered with mercy that it almost lost its look of justice and wore the semblance of indulgence. 
His holiness was one of God's eternal ideas, one of those which he most cherished and kept nearest to himself. He communicated with God in his hours of sleep as if his sleep was but the mystic slumber of contemplation. Even now in the church he stands back under the shadow of the Old Testament, as if that were rather the dispensation of the Father, and therefore the most congenial place for him. He draws near to the newborn Jesus that he may adore before he commands. His vast soul fills silently with love, and his life would have broken and ebbed away at the infant's feet upon the floor of the cave, as it did years afterwards on his lap, but the time was not come, and the babe sanctified him anew, and fortified him with amazing quiet strength and robust gentleness, and raised him into a higher sphere of holiness and of grace unspeakable, in order that he might be the official superior of his God. Who shall dare to guess what Jesus thought with his human thoughts, as he lay there for a moment on this ground, beholding with his eyes that furniture of the cave which Mary had been beholding, and which he had chosen from all eternity? Who would essay to fathom the unfathomable depths of that love and worship which he gave to God, a finite worship but of value infinite? The whole history of creation, past, present, and to come, was before him. He saw it all, embraced it all, understood it all. He felt himself to be the centre round which all else revolved, the hinge upon which all things turned, the light in which all was plain, the dread, lovely meeting point of the Creator and the creature. He was busy worshipping, he was busy redeeming, he was busy judging at that moment. All hearts of men lay in his heart at that hour. We too were there, centred in a little sphere of his loving knowledge and his merciful consideration. We too were inmates of the cave of Bethlehem, and of the cave's divinest centre, the heart of the newborn babe. Is not that thought enough to set the rudder of our life heavenwards once for all? Who shall tell the ineffable love which he bore to Mary, whom he was then first looking on with his human eyes, and whose fair soul lay open to his inward eye, and pleased discernment? Who shall tell with what exulting reverence he yearned towards Joseph? For Mary and Joseph were both radiantly wet all over with that precious blood, which, yet unshed, was flowing in his veins and throbbing in his heart. Those three, they were three kingdoms of God, but one king, three creations and the creator, one of these creations, three, yet as it were but one, one with an amazing unity, a unity which made them one, yet left them three, the earthly trinity. From the earthly trinity the adoring soul looks up abashed to the most holy trinity on high, thus wonderfully foreshadowed on the earth. Prostrate before the incomprehensible majesty, the hierarchies of the angels were bowed down at the hour of the nativity in Bethlehem. Through all the illimitable depths of the Godhead, profoundest oceans of unfathomable being, opening out everywhere into the profoundest oceans, through all the immeasurable realms of essence which space girdles not, over all the outstretched, unsuccessive life which time recounts not, was there an immense complacency, an unutterable, tranquil, brooding glory, at the moment when the babe was born in Bethlehem. There were immaterial waves of divine exaltation, the very spray of which might have been the stardust of countless, countless worlds, which passed at that hour over the abysses of the divine mind, over the radiant, far-withdrawn furnaces of the divine life. Yet was there no change in the immutable, there was no stir in God, gathered up 
as from the beginning, whole and entire and full, into each possible point of space and time, that divine life abode in its stationary calm, just as it had been, from before the beginning, when there were neither space nor time. There was no sound. Creation would have perished if that divine gladness had sounded. At the voice of such thunder, nature must have fled away. There was no movement. All things must have been displaced had God moved." they would have dropped back into indefinable nothingness from before any gesture of God's simplicity. The infinite encroached not on the finite with the bounding of that unutterable joy. Its presence broke not the slightest vessel which it filled, nor tore the frail rose-leaf within whose countless arteries it can confine itself by its essence and its power. Not a thrill was felt through the delicate framework of nature which one sunbeam of the daybreak can cause to tremble, to vibrate, and to glow. Vast, colossal, resistless, unbounded, incomprehensible was the divine complacency, yet the hush of midnight was not stiller, the breath of sleeping babe was not so gentle, there was no change in the unchangeable. Yet to angelic eyes the father seemed not more a father, yet in a new way a father, as he bent over the babe in the cave of Bethlehem. Not unmarked surely in the person of the Son was his sweet condescending joy in the sacred humanity, now among the visible things of a glad earth which already so teemed with loveliness. Surely, with more than common predilection, the invisible lightnings of the Holy Ghost played round Bethlehem, and the joy of Mary was but an emanation from the joy of her uncreated spouse, they saw those bright angelic hosts, they saw with trembling adoration, and the sight gladdened their endless gladness, and made their glory glow more wondrously, the complacency of the most holy trinity in the newborn child, as it were a new jubilee in the immutable, a new father, because the eternal father was newly a father, a new son, because the everlasting son was now also a son in time, a new Holy Ghost, because he was from old the unbeginning jubilee both of father and of son, and now the jubilee was new, new without novelty, new without mutation, new with an eternal newness. It was as if creation were making ripples on the shining, glancing depths of the uncreated, while the word was being still and again begotten and begotten of the father, begotten eternally at the selfsame moment he was being born in time, begotten eternally the moment after he had been born in time, and while the jubilant spirit was still and again proceeding and proceeding, eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son, in the selfsame moment that Jesus was being born in Bethlehem, and still and not anew, proceeding and proceeding the moment after that birth in Bethlehem. Thus it was, with such strange divine triumph, that the Creator came forth to be, as it were, a part of His own visible creation. But how did His creation receive Him? What welcome did it give Him? What response did it make to the mystery of Bethlehem? A response altogether worthy of him it could not be, for that was impossible, nay, beyond all possible power with which omnipotence itself could endow creation. But it welcomed him as best it could, and it was very gloriously. Mary's first act of worship met with the very moment he was born. No sooner had she seen his face than she adored him more perfectly than all the angels had been able to do in their thousands of years before the throne. Except by the incarnate word himself, never had the divine majesty been worshipped so worthily, so near to adequately, if we can speak of nearness when we think of that gulf which lies between the finite and the infinite. 
Never creature so cowered down before God in the sense of its own exceeding nothingness as Mary did. She could stoop lower than anyone else, because she was so much higher in holiness. Joseph also had worshipped him as no saint before had done. From his deep, calm soul he had poured out a very ocean of love, tenderest love, humblest love, love shrinking from being like the Father's love, yet also daring to be like it, as Mary's had been like the conjoined loves of Father and of Spirit, as she was mother and spouse conjoined. No angel might love Jesus as Joseph loved him, as Joseph was bound to love him. No temporal love but Mary's could be more like an eternal love than the love of Joseph for the child because of its likeness to the love of the everlasting father. The choirs of angels also sang out loud in the midnight heavens, while the winter night ran over with the sweetness of their strains. Every note in their music, every pulse in their exulting song, represented a whole world of supernatural acts in their mighty spirits, acts of love, of complacency, of worship, of adoring gratulation, of self-oblivious jubilee. Never had creation been so wonderful as it was that night. Never had it gathered round its God so gloriously as it did then. Never did it look less imperfect than when at that still hour it strove to lift itself to the height of the grand mystery, and while it fell short infinitely, yet it fell short worthily. Who would have dreamed that finite worship could be so nearly infinite as it was that night? O joyous thought! O grateful remembrance that Jesus was thus welcomed into the world. But we must try to enter further into this thought. Our view of the mystery of Bethlehem is incomplete without it. Fresh light is thrown on the Creator's coming by creation's response to His coming, its welcome, its salutation, its recognition of Him. The true history of His triumph is not told if the applauses which greeted Him are not mentioned also. The scene of the Creator's installation in His own creation is imperfect unless we depict also creation doing its homage and swearing its oath of fealty before His throne and at His human feet. Now Mary is not only the sovereign creature, but she is the representative creature also. While therefore the worship of Joseph and the songs of the angelic hosts are magnificent incidents in the coming of our Lord, we may consider Mary's first act of worship as by itself substantially the welcome of creation to its creator, and even at the risk of a little recapitulation, we must consider it attentively. End of section 10